know there's a light that glows by the front door. Don't forget the keys under the mat. When childhood stars shine, always stay humble and kind. Go to church 'cause your mama says to. Visit Grandpa every chance that you can. Won't be wasted time. Always stay humble and kind. That's the subject of my teaching today: is moral strength and moral courage. Getting to the teaching now, I just want to remind everybody that you know the scripture. Says that evil seducers will wax worse and worse. I mean, God never promised us a rose garden, did He? He didn't. When we, you know, signed on the dotted line by getting born again, I hope none of us were under the illusion that Christianity was going to be a cakewalk. It's not. Life isn't a cakewalk, as、uh, Jordan Peterson says. Life is an existential tragedy. That's pretty brutal, but I think it's it's pretty pretty true too. We're here on this planet for one purpose, and that is that we are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our mission. Our mission isn't sitting around on our computers trying to figure out every conspiracy theory that there is. And so, I really want to encourage people. You know, it's it's not a wrong thing necessarily to consider some views, but if you are obsessed with conspiracy theories, your head is in the wrong place. Okay. It's in the wrong place. I think a lot of times, many of us have this secret desire to be a prophet because prophets are so cool. And a lot of us get dragged into this, you know, seeking after conspiracies. And、um, I just think it's vain. It's vain. If you go into the Old Testament, you read about the schools of the prophets. The prophets prophesied by God, and most of their prophecies, with the exception of a few, most of the prophecies were very localized in both location and in time. Okay, they weren't these panaceas or these grandiose prophecies. Like I said, most of the time you find those in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But it seems like today, anytime somebody comes along and calls himself a prophet, man, they've got all kinds of things to say about everything under the sun. And I'm just saying, keep yourself away from those. They're not healthy, and they keep you from doing what you ought to be doing, which is telling people about Jesus Christ. Okay? I remember back in the old days, you know, I don't know if you've ever come across them, but you know, people who spent all their time dissecting songs by the Eagles. <laughs> And telling about how devilish they were, <laughs> and I heard an interview with、uh, with one of the、uh, singers, Glenn Frey, I think it was, and he was laughing about it. And he said, "You know, when we read these things, we didn't know we were saying all that stuff." <laughs> But see, that's a speculative mind. It's a mind that is devoted to idle thinking. My wife and I were talking about it yesterday. I'm an engineer. I work with tangible things, and one of the things that I enjoy about the sciences is that there is a sense of robustness to it. That you can't just make a statement and expect everybody to believe it. That there's validation involved. But somehow, when it comes to other things, people get up there and they say things. And everybody flocks to them. I don't know why. Okay, so be careful, please.
Anyway, so today we're going to talk about morals. So what are morals? Morals relate to the practice, manner, or conduct of men or women as social beings in relation to each other. And with reference to, and here's the two key words, right and wrong. The word moral is applicable to actions that are, here's another two words, good and evil, or virtuous or vicious. And it has a reference to the law of God as the standard by which their character is to be determined. The word, however, may be applied to actions which affect only or primarily and principally a person's own happiness. So the idea here is objection to moral laws and being capable of moral actions that we are bound by these laws to perform social duties as a moral agent or a moral being. The opposite of moral is immoral or amoral. Okay, amoral means no morals. Immoral means bad morals. And one of the greatest aspects of Christianity is moral instruction, teaching people how to reason morally, reason concerning vice and virtue. Moral law, the law of God, prescribes moral and social duties and prohibits the transgression of them. Is that clear to everybody? That's morals. As beings who are created in the image of God, we are moral beings. We are moral beings. Each of us possesses an internal moral or an internal innate moral sense. We have an instinctive perception of what is right or wrong, good or evil. This moral sense approves of some actions while it disapproves of other actions. Another name for this moral sense is, can anybody think of it? Our conscience. That's right, our conscience. This sense is independent of our education or our knowledge of any positive rule or law. It's a sense, right? It's a sense. It's intuitive. Does that make sense to you? This moral sense I'm talking about. So as Christians, most of our time is spent talking about moral purity, staying pure morally. But equally as important to moral purity is something that we need to talk more about, which is moral strength or moral courage, Moral strength or moral courage, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So when we say moral strength, what do we mean? We mean the ability to determine to do the right thing, to determine to do the right thing. There are two aspects of that. First of all, there is to know what the right thing is. And then the second part of that is to carry through to the doing of the right thing. I always think of uh, Paul in the book of Corinthians when he's talking about the tithe. And he said, well, you intended to give a tithe, and that's a good thing. Now perform the doing of it. So there's the intention of doing the right thing. And then there's the doing of the right thing, right? You think about the verse where it said, God worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's the will to do the right thing and the doing of it. So, first of all, knowing what is the right thing to do. 
We have a phrase uh, many of us have heard used about. It's called moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity. What does moral ambiguity mean? It means to be unclear morally. This is an affliction that plagues our culture, to be morally unclear or to not even know what the right thing is, to be morally misinformed. My wife and I were talking yesterday, and I was telling her a quote that I heard uh, from Denzel Washington. He said this, this one time, he says, he says, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. <laughs> and I think that's pretty much true as far as morals go, too, right? That a lot of us are either morally uninformed or morally misinformed. Moral clarity is the opposite of moral ambiguity, moral clarity, being clear on what is right and what is wrong. I think about this and I think about the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six, how they told the how the the word of God instructed the early Jew that he was to be teaching his children when he was lying down and when he was standing up and he was going out and he was coming in, that the moral instruction goes on and on and on, especially to our young people. We have a real problem in this country that parents have abdicated their responsibilities to teach their children what is morally proper. They've abdicated those responsibilities to the TV set, to their school teachers, to the Internet, and it's wrong. It is the parents' responsibility to teach children what is right and wrong. But a lot of times, I mean, we live in a day and time where the parents don't even know what right and wrong is. You know, for them, it's a crapshoot. So there's moral clarity. And then in addition to moral clarity, there's moral certainty that you not only intellectually perceive of what's right and wrong, but you are certain of it. Does that make sense to everyone? That you have conviction behind your thinking, moral certainty. I think a lot of times we raise timid children because we don't raise them with certainty that this is the right path, walk you in it. So moral ambiguity, I would say, is either not knowing or a lack of clarity as to what is right and wrong. You don't have to turn there, but James chapter 1, verse 8, it says, He is a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Double-mindedness, not being clear or having two different opinions on the same subject, right? Trying to serve two gods. One minute I'm saying one thing. The next minute I'm saying something else. I'm ambiguous. I'm not certain. I'm not teaching certainty. In the household, the father and the mother are, demand respect. And if the respect isn't there, everything else stops until it is. It absolutely should be demanded in a household. If you don't have a moral authority in that house, you have ambiguity. Does that make sense to everyone? Now, with younger children, of course, it's much easier than with teenagers. <laughs> because with teenagers, the moral authority is constantly being challenged. But that means even more so that father and mother come together shoulder to shoulder, and there is no daylight between them because they represent something important. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Parents need to speak into the lives of their children, even when their children 
don't want to hear it. Remember the, the proverb, train, train up a child in the way he should go, and what? When he is older, he will not depart from it. We live in a day and time of moral ambiguity, moral ignorance, and moral deception. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's the ESV for that verse. That's what the ESV says. So good morals, good morals. The ability to distinguish between good morals and bad morals. What are bad morals? They are values and standards that are morally unhealthy and deceptive. Oftentimes, they have the appearance of being good morals, but they're not. When Satan deceived Eve in the garden, he deceived her on moral grounds. He appealed to her rights. (laughs) She had a right to live independent from God and be all that she could be, right? We hear a lot of that moral today, don't we? Throw off the past. Throw off the chains that bind you down and be who you can be. There's some validity in some of it, but much of it is nothing but rebellion. Is it a moral? Yes. Is it a good moral? Never, if it means a life independent from God. Notice that this verse, evil associations corrupt good morals. Uh, Notice that the verse doesn't say bad company corrupts morals. It says bad company corrupts good morals. And the point I'm making here is this that the term morality or immorality, the terms, are thrown around a lot today, aren't they? I regularly hear that anyone who disfavors LGBTQ or trans rights or gay marriage, that they are immoral. They are immoral people. So the idea isn't just that we're being moral, either you're moral or you're not. The point is, are you living according to proper morals, because there are certainly proper and improper morals. In biblical culture, the term bad company meant having associations with worthless or evil people. This had you know, regards to friendships or business associates. Today, however, bad company needs to be defined in a broader sense. What do I mean by that? I mean, not only does it refer to the associations that we might have with worthless and evil people, but there is a very necessary extension required in our associations with the Internet, with television programming, with movies that we watch, with video games that we play. You know, my wife and I like to watch a little TV at night and, uh, you know, we uh, we like BBC and uh, so we'll start off on a program, and, and uh, it seems great, you know. It's a great program, and we'll get along. And before you know it, they're introducing gay couples or gay, gay whatever. I mean, and, and, and you know, I kind of studied this, and I thought about this. You don't want to shut the program off because you've developed a relationship with the characters, you know. And, and all of a sudden, you have this thing there. And... And so you're tempted to say, eh, I'm just going to put up with it because I want to see the end of the show. I want to see what happens. And uh, that's that's a ploy of the devil. Get you sucked into the relationship. You're committed. And then put something like this in there and people will 
oh, I'll put up with it. I just want to, you know, get to the end. And so what happens is we allow our resolve to get worn down and worn down and worn down. And pretty soon what, what happens? We lose our sense of outrage that a man having sex with another man, eh, it's not so bad. And a woman having sex with another woman, eh, it's not so bad. And the fact that there's 30,000 different genders, eh, that's what some people think, I guess, right? And our sense of, of outrage, in our, it's just worn down to the point where it doesn't bother us anymore. And pretty soon we have this go-along-to-get-along mentality morally. That's moral ambiguity, folks. That's moral ambiguity. You have allowed it into your life. Make no mistake, who or what we spend time with will greatly influence how we think and act. Is that clear enough? So if we can continually put ourselves in positions where, we, where we're watching questionable stuff on TV and, and, you know, I've gone too far. My wife and I, we've made mistakes. We've kept the TV set on too long watching something that was just not right. We didn't shut it off like we should have. And we walked away and it influences us. It influences us. In addition to this, we got to ask ourselves the question, you know, or make the observation, I should say, who we choose to spend time with is a barometer of our moral health. You know, the TV shows that I'm attracted to. I've talked to my, my son about, you know, he likes scary movies. He, he says a little bit. <laughs> but what is, it, what is it about the scary movie that's enticing you? Um, if we choose to fellowship with God in prayer and, and to fellowship with wise and mature Christians, that's certainly a good indication of good moral health. But if we find ourselves constantly in bad company, whether in personal associations on the Internet, on uh, watching TV, uh, video games, etc., it should alert us to the moral corruption we are cultivating in our own souls. The person who is on top of this all the time is my wife. She is the keeper of the home and she does a great job of it. Um, what was that? Video game I brought home, Joshua. What is it called? It wasn't fascinating. Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. I, you know, I was under the impression that it was, you know, just guys going around taking each other's car, no big deal. I mean, and then I'm sitting there watching with my son, and some guy kills a cop, and that was it. Boy, that that show went right out the out the door. So that's the kind of stuff that people are allowing their kids to watch. Now, if you've sensed in our culture that we have become prolifically more evil in recent years. You aren't mistaken. Now, of course, there are people who would like to say, you know, you're just taking things to an extreme. And that's another ploy of the devil, by the way. You sense something and somebody comes along and says, ah, you're just overreacting. You're not overreacting. It's true. Look at the mass shootings that we have. Look at the gay and lesbian marriage that 20 years ago would have just been appalling. And now it's normal transgenderism. How about the fact that we have a good chunk of our 20-year-olds wanting to be Marxists? I mean, it's it's mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. Um, or how about this hyper-moralism that we find in our culture, this obsession with racism and sexism and xenophobia, homophobia. People are obsessed with this hyper-moralism. 
to the point where they see problems everywhere. It's crazy. And this is all a result of the wrongful indulgence of our moral sense. We are dealing, we are messing around with our values, our moral sense. Turn to Proverbs chapter 14, Proverbs 14. Remember what I said earlier. All of us are created in the image of God. We have this moral capacity. Animals do not have moral capacity. Humans do. It distinguishes us from any other animal in the animal kingdom. And it is probably one of the greatest indications that we are, you know, the offspring of God. Proverbs 14, look at verse 7. It says, stay away from the foolish man, for you will not find knowledge on his lips. We've got to be clear on this. Ecclesiastes talks about all things are vanity and vexation of spirits. Vanity, vanity, right? And we've talked about that in this fellowship. What is vanity? Uh, you know, a lot of times people will use the term vanity in the sense of, you know, I, I like to look at myself in the mirror, Right? I'm hung up on myself. Well, the biblical definition of vanity means emptiness, worthless. From a spiritual point of view, it's worthless. And people spend their entire lives devoted to worthlessness. When we perceive that a person or a TV show or whatever is foolish, we will find no knowledge there. Go to Proverbs chapter 13. And if we find no knowledge there, it's vain. It's empty. Proverbs 13, look at verse 20. It says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. A companion of fools. And you don't have to hang out with foolish men and women. You can hang out with foolishness on TV or foolishness on the Internet. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is something that we need to really come to terms with. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. My two teenage boys have access to the Internet. You need to be very careful on the Internet. Flee youthful immoral- or, uh, sexual immorality. Go to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1. Look at verse 10. It says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let us lie in wait for someone's blood, meaning let's lie in wait to murder somebody. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive. Let the grave, or like the grave and whole, like those who go down to the pit, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us, and we will share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into sin, and they are swift to shed blood. Boy, I can't think of any better verse in the Bible uh, that substantiates, or verses that substantiate this whole notion about, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. But a lot of us would read this and, you know, waylaying somebody, you know, we think about, you know, you know, the carriage coming down the road and we're off on the side with our horses and, and we go charging up and we kill people and we take their goal and we say, well, how does this apply in our time? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the stuff of TV of, you know, the West, you know, we think eh, that's a bit extreme. Uh, I have no intention of waylaying anybody or 
killing anybody or plundering anybody. But think about this. We hear these stories about kids in high school get together and get on the Internet and murder one of their classmates' reputation by posting pictures or passing along gossip or things like that, right? And they do it with glee in their hearts. They think, wow, this is great, while they're destroying somebody else's life. Isn't that something? And why wouldn't they? Teenagers are simply watching what their seniors are doing. Adults do this sort of thing all the time, don't they? Members of our own government, journalists who write newspapers, right, who pull out all the stops in an effort to destroy a a man or a woman who is deemed a political rival. You know, I think of this whole situation with uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. He was a Supreme Court nominee. Now, whether you agree with Brett Kavanaugh or not is beside the point. CNN wrote or published 700 articles on the sexual deviancy of Brett Kavanaugh in an incident that happened in his high school days, supposedly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, even if this incident happened, right, whether or not that it happened, the probability is it didn't happen because of all the contradictions in the story of this woman, uh, what's her name, Um, yeah, Christine Blasey Ford, all the contradictions in her story. But even if it did happen, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't all that horribly, um, you know, it wasn't a horrible situation. I, I would write it off as a youthful indiscretion, and that's it. But it wasn't about that, was it? It was about destroying a man's reputation and destroying his chances at the Supreme Court. And that's why these people went out to murder his reputation. And how do I know that? Well, there's been allegations that have recently come up by a woman named Tara Reid against Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden happens to be with the right political group, doesn't he? Do you hear anybody saying anything? Have you read 700 articles about this incident between Joe Biden and Tara Reid? No, most people have never even heard a peep. So when we talk about waylaying somebody... When we talk about murdering them, when we talk about plundering their goods, it goes on every day in this country. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs 6, and look at verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven things that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates it. You know, in God's mind, to murder somebody's character is comparable to actually murdering somebody. Go to First John chapter 3, verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. See, and in this case, morals. What's the moral that's being employed? Believe the women. Got to believe the women. Got to protect the women. Let me ask you this. Do we have a problem protecting women? I mean, you know, I mean, the desire, of course, is to protect women. Absolutely. Any man who has the right to call himself a man is going to protect a woman. But that I see people use this in the Me Too movements, right? It's this deceptive use of morals to commit immorality. This idea of protecting Christine Blasey Ford's situation 
meant destroying this man. And it was all for political purposes. It was all for political purposes. So instead of a standard to live one's life by, morals become a club that we take out when we need to in order to beat our political rivals into submission. That's wrong. That's always wrong. That's what I call being hyper-moralized. You know, for years, Harvey Weinstein, you know, uh, we all know about him. He was the Hollywood mogul. He was the most connected man in Hollywood. He was a mover and a shaker, and he was able to get people from here to there and give success. And people loved him. Why? Because he made people incredibly successful, incredibly successful. And he just asked for one little thing, a sexual favor here and a sexual favor there. Right. And so when his name would come up, there'd be kind of a chuckle. Oh, you know, Harvey, Harvey. And if you doubt me on this, there's there's some YouTube clips out there that show Harvey with all these starlets that we all know. And they're just gushing over him and they're hanging on his shoulder and kissing his ear. And, oh, you're just so great. And then what happened? The Me Too movement came out. And all of a sudden, Harvey Weinstein, did he do anything differently? No, he's doing what he did for the last 30 years. But all of a sudden, he's a beast. He's evil. Now, how do I feel about why the arms uh, Weinstein? He's a pig. Anybody who would use sex in that regard, is a pig. But 30 years ago, he was just as much a pig as he is now. And in the interim, during those 30 years, nobody should have been hanging on his shoulder or kissing his earlobe or benefiting from his placement. Does that make sense to everybody? And so you see this idea, this world where people turn their their morals on, their values on, and then they turn them off as it suits them. Don't get caught up in that. What does the Bible say? In season and out of season. In season and out of season. We do the right thing even when it's not convenient. Even if it means that you're going to get persecuted for it. Even if it means that you might even get killed for it. You do the right thing because it's the right thing. And because that's what God has called you to do. That's your witness. Do the right thing. Doing the right thing is an act of the will. You know, a lot of things in the Bible are, you know, let the word of God dwell in you richly, right? Let it, right? Let the peace of God, you know, rule your heart. Let it. Allow it to happen, right? Get out of its way. But there's a lot of things in the Bible that are things of the will, where you set your mind to it. You do it. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 5. It says, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man or an idolater is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such thing, things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. disobedient. Is that clear to everybody? God is angry with Immorality. Many of us grew up in the church where eh, it's grace. It's grace. Mm-mm. No, it's disfavor. It's disfavor. That's not what we should be thinking about. It's grace for you to do this. No, it's disfavor. God's disfavor. Go to Ephesians chapter four. Look in verse twenty-five. It says, "Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body." 
In other words, by an act of will, stop lying. Stop lying and speak the truth. Don't wait until the this feeling comes upon you. Stop doing it and start doing this. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Stop sinning in your anger. It doesn't say stop being angry, but it certainly says stop sinning when you're angry. Do not let the sun go down upon or go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Sounds pretty wise to me. Verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work and do something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Stop stealing. Stop stealing and start working and doing and providing and helping and giving. That's an act of the will. Um, Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful in building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Stop saying things that hurt other people. Stop saying things that provoke other people. Say the right thing. Do the right thing. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So I remember when I first heard these verses taught, the person who taught this said, don't pray about it, do it. I would say pray about it and do it, right? Remember, God worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. A lot of times I do things because of my wrongheadedness or because of my sinfulness. And God certainly can help me in that regard, can he? But ultimately, he can only work with my intention. I have got to perform the doing of it. I've got to do it. And what does it say in verse 32? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Is that a will, a thing of the will? Certainly it is. Forgiving somebody. You know you ought to forgive somebody. You know you ought to be kind to somebody. Well, stop just knowing it. Start doing it. Moral courage versus moral cowardice. Moral courage versus moral cowardice. Most of those that you will come across who start lecturing you on the isms, the racism, sexism, and homophobia, and Islamophobia, in fact, these are moral cowards. They know in their the heart of their hearts that their cause is, you know, simply misdirecting. It's superficial and it's false. And so they cover up this knowledge in their heart of hearts by vehemence and anger and passion for their cause. Well, let me explain something. Vehemence is a counterfeit for courage, right? People who will shout you down because they're afraid that you might say something that would threaten them, right? These are the people running around looking for their safe spaces. We need to be men and women of moral courage. And true moral courage comes with a lot of peace and grace, doesn't it? Because what's right and wrong isn't dependent on who I am. What's right and wrong is dependent on who God is, right? Because all men are liars. All men are liars. If I've personalized my morals in the sense that You know, it's right and wrong because I said it is, then I'm wrong. You ever hear the phrase, you know, there's 
you know, two people are arguing and the question needs to move, move from who's right to what's right. You know, from who's right and wrong to what's right and wrong. This is a real challenge for married couples, isn't it? You know, being able to being able to suck it up and say in the middle of a sentence, when you are going down a wrong road with your spouse, to stop yourself in mid-sentence and say, I'm wrong here. I'm sorry. Right. You're right. Or whatever. That is not about you. It's about truth and right. Think about uh, this uh phrase that I heard once upon a time, and it has served me for many years. You know, a person who has weaker values, weaker morals, and they look at somebody who's who's got strong values and they say, wow, that person is that person's amazing. And, you know, being able to get what he's got or she's got, that's just an unreachable and inaccessible goal. Well, this this quote that I've learned is it's as easy for a strong man to be strong as a weak man is to be weak. Why? Because you've developed that in your life. A person who consistently does the right thing over and over and over by an act of the will has determined to do the right thing over and over. It becomes habit. It's who that person is. It's as easy to, uh, for a strong man to be strong as a weak man is to be weak. And that's why it is in our own best interest when somebody stops us and says, you know, you're not right here for us to cleave to that and to get that right. I think about David and Goliath, the story. <laughs> it's one of my favorites in the Bible. But a lot of times it's taught from the point of view that this was some kind of archetypal struggle between the underdog and, and the oppressor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, and instead, it's a story of courage, moral courage. That centers around a person's reliance on God's strength and not his own. And this is a key element to being morally strong. It's God's strength within me. It's strength of character. It's strength of resolve. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. So David walks up. He sees all the soldiers scared to death. And he looks out and there's this peacock of a Philistine, this big, strong man strutting back and forth, defying God, hurling invectives at God, right, insulting God. And so he goes into Saul and he says, I want to fight this guy. And Saul says, you, you're just a little dude. And and uh, so looking for Samuel 17, looking verse 34, it says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep. From the raw, uh, from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. You think that required some courage? Yes. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. You see a little certainty there? A little moral certainty? A little moral clarity? How about that? I mean, you think about that. You know, how many of those troops on the front line were saying, well, you know, this Philistine, they might have a point. <laughs> I mean, it's like what our country does whenever we have to deal with, you know, an adversary. And you have this whole section of our our country that sides up with our enemies every time, every time. And the reason they do that is because they're a bunch of moral cowards. And that's the truth of it. 
They try to cover it over and make it sound like they're, oh, so wise. They're not wise. They're cowards. David here is clear. He knows what he's talking about. He says in verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Reading this over again. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. There's your clarity. How dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about this incident and I also talked about Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego. And how they were put on the spot and they were being told by Nebuchadnezzar, it's moral for you to worship my statue. And they said, we're not bowing. We are not bowing. And whether it be right in your sight, you know, later on in the book of Acts, that we should obey you or and not God, you judge. <laughs> for we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard, said Peter and John. Right. Later on, it's that same vein that we see throughout the whole Bible. It's a defiance. It's standing. It's a moral clarity. This is the right way to go, and we're to walk in it. Let me ask you something. Does it take a lot of moral courage to go around criticizing and finding fault in others? No, it doesn't. That's false morality. Going around pointing out other people's faults, that's easy. It takes courage, however, to examine your own faults, doesn't it? To look in those areas of your life that most people dare not go. I had somebody one time trying to tell me that, you know, Christianity is escapism. It's a way to hide. I said, not the Christianity I know. The Christianity that I know challenges me to go places with God that few people go. Look at things that most people don't want to look at in my life. That's courage. Moral courage to be able to say, I have sinned like David did and not to do what Saul did. Oh, it, it wasn't my fault. It, it, it was his fault and, and his fault and his fault. Do you see that? That's moral cowardice. Moral courage is taking responsibility for your life. And then instead of turning around and making it onerous for the next guy, helping him to learn how to take responsibility for his life. That's how this whole thing works. Moral cowardice is we know the right thing, but we just fail to step out and do it. We like to dress cowardice up. We like to give it other names. We call it wisdom. It was a wise thing to do or or prudence or I'm just being cautious. Right. But when we examine ourselves before God, we see what courage really is. Right. My wife and I were laughing about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't know anybody who's seen it, but, you know, King Arthur say, charge, and he charge in there, and then, and then it would get too rough for him, and he'd say, run away, run away. <laughs> You'd have to see it to know it, but I think a lot of times that's what we do is these things in our lives that we're afraid of. We're afraid of confronting. It's so much easier to blame them on somebody else. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 10, <laughs> look at verse 5. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We're supposed to examine ourselves, examine ourselves. This verse harkens back to Gideon when God first called him, and he went out and destroyed the, the grove 
right? And he pissed everybody off when he did it. They were so angry at him. His father stood up. I thought that was pretty cool. But you think about it, people spend their entire lifetimes avoiding self-examination. What's that phrase? An unexamined life is not worthy to be lived. An unexamined life is not worthy to be lived. Finding fault in society, finding fault in others, right? It's just a diversion. It's, it's people failing to look at their own problems first. Look at your own issues. Get your own life in order, and then you actually have something to contribute to society. But what do we tell our kids in school? Kids come into school. I mean, you know, it's Jordan Peterson says it. You know, you don't even have to clean your room. And you're telling these kids who don't even have to clean their room, go off and change the world. Really? With what? With their astounding wisdom? With their incredible resourcefulness? They don't have anything to change the world other than a big old yapping foolish mouth. We need to stop telling people this is a leftover notion of the 60s, right? Every You've got your voice. You've got to find your voice and go out there and speak it. Oh, my God. I mean, that's that's filling up the airways with foolishness. You've got to become something in order to offer something. I have no respect for somebody shooting their mouth off. The Bible has plenty to say about the fool shooting his mouth off. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 5, it says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's what comes from examining yourself. That's why it scares us a little bit, doesn't it? Sometimes we fail the test. We go in there and we say, okay, I'm going to examine myself, and then you come up short. What does that mean? That means you're not who you thought you were, and you need a little bit of work. It gives you something to pray about and something to roll up your sleeves with God and get to work on, right? Go to First Corinthians or First Chronicles 28, First Chronicles 28. But as I said before, God is with you every step of the way. He will never leave you and forsake you, and that is especially true when he's walking side by side with you as you look at these areas of your life that need a change in. Change is a good thing. I don't want to be that person in my 60s or 70s who has spent my entire life avoiding change. You know, that that's one of the, the cries of the 60s. I'm not changing for anybody. I'm going to stand my ground and I'm not changing for anybody. Well, that's that's all nice and good. I mean, you don't want to be a chameleon, you know, and in in that light, sure. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to go changing to every philosophy that comes along, but on the same token, when God tells you to change, you better be changing. First Chronicles 28, look in verse 20. It says David also said to Solomon his son, "Be strong and courageous." And do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. What a great line there. He's telling his son, look, be courageous and get to the work. Because my God is going to be with you. And then he'll be what? Your God too, right? He will not fail you or forsake you until the work for the service of the temple of God is finished. God sees his work through. God is with us. We are the temple of God. 
We are to be fearless and encouraged in God. You know, I think about this. God's great commitment to man started with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Well, I mean, it started long before that. But the greatness of the Holy Spirit, this God's great commitment is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and that indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that it was henceforth permanent. That Holy Spirit isn't here today, gone tomorrow. God committed himself to us in the permanence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God started a good work in you. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, right? And one of the great purposes of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the regeneration of a person's character. Does that make sense to everyone? That you go from being a person of questionable values and questionable morals to a person who is like Christ. Do you see that in your character? You're like Christ in that image of Christ within you, but now you're like Christ in your character. Your character measures it up. Go to Second Peter. Second Peter. God wants our lives filled with virtue and godliness. He wants to build up these values within our lives. Look in verse 3. It says his divine, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. It says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And that word for goodness there can be translated virtue. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God wants us to escape the corruption of the world. He wants to give us virtue. He wants us to be a virtuous people. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. How much effort? Every effort to add to your faith goodness. That word goodness there can be translated virtue. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness Love. Now listen to this. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. How about that? That's pretty spectacular. Go to Exodus chapter 23. We're in the, in the end run here. Exodus 23. The children of Israel, uh, It's about talking about them going into the promised land. It says in verse 20, it says, see, I am sending. This is the Lord speaking. I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to a place I have prepared. And think about this, where God is taking us as far as our morals are concerned. Right. Let me read the sentence over again. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to a place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. Meaning that this angel was about the Lord's work. It says, do, uh, it says uh, if you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies. And I will oppose those who oppose you. Now, what are we talking about here in the context of the teaching? Those lower values, those things. Remember, it's his 
easy for a strong man to be strong as a weak man to be weak. Those things that will entice you to be weaker. God will stand with you and oppose those. 23, my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And what will I do? I will wipe the ites out. (laughs) Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. We are not supposed to coexist. The bumper sticker coexist is not for us. That is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're casting down imagination. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we're bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, right? Who are the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites of our time? These are all the false values, the false morals that God warns us to stay away from. Right. And we're going to end up in Ephesians six here. Verse 10, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The greatness of being morally virtuous. And by the way, the word virtue means to be morally pristine, illustrative, morally illustrative. The secret to that is that it's the Lord, his strength within you that you let him be strong for you. We human beings are a weak bunch, but we are strong in him and the power of his might. All right, so that's what I wanted to share today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. Father, we thank you that you strengthen us. Father, you enable us with that great Holy Spirit. Father, you make us strong and righteous and make us a good and holy people, Father. And we thank you for all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hold the door,
minutes hot Need a root beer popsicle Shut off the AC and roll the windows down Let that summer sun shine Always stay humble and kind Don't take for granted the love this life gives you When you get where you're going Don't forget turn back around Help the next one in line Always stay humble and 